Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. You may have seen the nine-foot-tall statue in Central Park that celebrated Dr. J. Marion Sims, the man who was known as the father of modern gynecology, before the city removed it five years ago. In reality, it turns out that Sims wasn't the hero he and others had made him appear to be. In his latest book, J.C. Hallman tells the story of the enslaved women upon whom he operated. The book, Say Anarcha, A Devious Surgeon and the Harrowing Birth of Modern Women's Health, is published by Henry Holton Company, and it brings J.C. Hallman to our show now. Welcome. Thanks so much, Leonard. Good to be with you. Wasn't J. Marion Sims called the father of modern gynecology for over a century? Oh, yeah. I mean, he was, you know, a, you know, the, the story about him was that he was this heroic pioneering surgeon. And, you know, he was a very much a showman in a kind of modeled after P.T. Barnum. Um, and he created that image of himself. And then that image was sustained by a kind of group of hagiographers and apologists, you know, the bulk of the male medical establishment in the United States through the first part of the 20th century. Gee, and, is it uh, because he was a man? Because it had hadn't that area of medicine been largely the province of midwives? Yeah, you know, for, for many, many years, midwifery was the province of, of female health practitioners. And in the middle of the 19th century, male doctors essentially came in and took over and, and tried to turn it more into a science, which was, you know, a 19th century, uh, you know, definition of science, which, which of course, included scientific racism. So, uh, so it was really problematic in a lot of ways. Didn't he establish the first hospital specifically for women? I'm assuming white women. Um, he, well, yeah. In, in New York City, he established Women's Hospital, but there was there is that too has been misrepresented in history because it more or less immediately became a laboratory for additional surgical experiments, particularly on Irish immigrant women. And and so um, the idea that that this hospital or this institution represented this you know important advance, it finally a hospital for women, is a little bit of a misnomer. If you want something like that, you should probably look to the infirmary uh, that was launched by the Blackwell sisters, also in New York at around the same time. Well, he was one of the most famous and respected physicians in the United States, and in 1876 he was elected president of the American Medical Association. So uh, he was pretty important. He treated European royalty. Then he published an autobiography in, 19, in 1885. Yeah, I mean, I think the the um, the election to the AMA is a really interesting story because it came on the tail end of his having been thrown out of his own hospital, a woman's hospital, um, because his mortality rates were too high. Huh. And it was the board of lady managers that actually wound up taking the action that resulted in him being expelled. And there's a, there's a longer story there. Um, but, you know, it was this backlash against the actions of this board board of female managers that resulted in Sims being elected to the presidency of the AMA. It was a it was it was sort of a gender war that was taking place. And so Sims yeah, did wind up with a year as president of the AMA. Beginning in 1845 and into the 1850s, didn't he begin developing surgical instruments and techniques that were intended to help women survive difficult conditions related to childbirth, especially fistulas? Well, that's the story, right? That's the narrative that Sims created and has been sustained uh, for a long time. You know, the, that story began to get reevaluated in the late 1960s. And there's been a, you know, four main books that have, have addressed that in mostly scholarly works. And um, but when I set out on my book, um, you know, I said you know, I wanted to do a deeper dive that had than had ever been done on Sims before. You know, the four other books were were really broad surveys that weren't only about Sims. They addressed him and they addressed his work, but they weren't strictly about him. And so there had there was room for this deep dive into Sims' career. And what I found was that virtually everything, every clinical advance that was credited to him was either debunked within his lifetime or was later shown to be the work of other doctors. So it really turned out that this narrative, the narrative of Sims as the pioneering surgeon, 
um, responsible for cures and, and devices and so on, that all of it was fiction, just top to bottom. It's hard to believe that that a, a, such a fraudulent fiction could come to stand as objective history, but that's exactly what happened. Because he was a self-aggrandizer. Uh, w when you began working on this research, wasn't the world just beginning to look into the history of white supremacy's connection to racial health disparities that were exposed by COVID-19 and the disproportionate number of black women who die while giving birth? Yeah, I mean, I think there were a lot. There were a lot of things that domestically that that were were people were thinking about. They were thinking about ongoing racial health disparities that have been afflicting the country for a long time. They've been thinking about, um, you know, the the lingering um, traces of of the medical racism that results in a belief that that black women feel less pain than white women. For example, I came into the story through the back door. I first learned about the ongoing fistula crisis in. Africa, um, which is a, a you know a crisis to this day, and and so I my my entry point was this recognition that this major story, the ongoing fistula crisis in Africa and the developing world, was directly related to the story of Sims and the young woman Anarka in Alabama. But it was really both things, you know. There there were there were um, you know many ways of understanding how this particular history impacts the world today. Didn't. Uh... A biographer in 1950 uh, say in his book that black women didn't feel any pain. Yeah, that's where this really comes from. I mean, at least at least in this terms is of 1950, we're talking about Seal Harris. He published an yes. admiring biography of Sims. Yeah, I mean, at least in terms of the connection of the black women don't feel pain idea in in connection to Sims, that's the really shocking thing is that it doesn't it doesn't come from Sims himself. It comes from that later team or you know sort of mob of hagiographers and apologists. And the biggest one of those was this guy Seal Harris, and he said exactly this that that black women had a racial endowment or they had a particular strength that had been bred into them by generations of forced servitude, and and he said that. Not in Sims time, not 170 years ago, but in 1950, really only 70 years ago in the, in the, in, inside the lifetime of many people who are probably listening today. Well, obviously, the, the black women were feeling pain when they were being operated on. Is that just ignored? Um, yeah, I mean, I think what's what Sims did, you know, he he uh, performed many, many experiments. Um, he'd gathered together approximately 10 young enslaved women of whom three names are known, Anarka, Lucy and Betsy. And he began to perform uh, surgical experiments on them without the use of anesthesia. And and that was odd because, you know, Sims wrote about anesthesia later in life. He knew that chloroform and ether were just then beginning to be used. And he knew that nitrous oxide had been around for, for decades. And he knew that he could use opium or laudanum, um, you know, to uh, to uh, address pain in, in, in other patients that he was performing experiments on at the same time. He just didn't do it for these women. And it's a little bit baffling. Didn't the women say that it was like being whipped while giving birth? <laughs> Uh, you know, it's it's you know, my book is is trying to imagine this world, you know, so I'm I'm um, uh, I am in the same way that some of the hard sciences will engage in sort of dramatic recreations of things when when it's time to sort of share their work with the general public. You know, there were a lot of lacking. There were a lot of gaps in the story. And sometimes I, I filled in those gaps by using um, material from the WPA slave narratives. And and other times, you know, you're making inferences, you're making, you know, guesses about what people would likely have believed. And I talk about this in the introduction to the book and even in the text of the book when I'm, when I'm um, you know, making speculations. And I've created an online archive of materials as well where people can go and see my explanations for those narrative choices. But I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the pain of these surgeries would have been um, awful. And uh, and likening it to the other kind of pain that they would have been aware of would have makes a lot of sense. So he proclaimed himself the cure of obstetric fistulas. What are obstetric fistulas? 
So a fistula is a um, abnormal point of communication between two hollow pockets or organs in the body. And it can be anywhere in the body. Obstetric fistula is very specifically a point of abnormal point of communication from the vagina to another part of the body. It can be the urethra, it can be the uterus, it can be the it can be the bladder, it can be the rectum. You know, there there's um, a, a lot of different kinds, but they all obstetric fistula all result from prolonged obstructed labor, where a woman is is having a baby. And we're talking about pre cesarean section. And the baby is just too large. It's a mechanical obstruction. It can't come out. And um, the baby's head is pressing against the pubic bone and a relentless pressure for days on end winds up destroying some of the tissue. And and that hmm. tissue, um, after the baby finally does come out, usually a stillbirth, uh, when the baby finally does come out, it takes a few days and then that tissue falls away or sloughs away, as they say, and that leaves, leaves a hole. And what's important to understand about that is that that's not a tear, that's not a rip or a cut. It is a crush wound that results in an in a loss a tissue loss that isn't going to be replaced so repairing that is is not uh, as easy as 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 just st stitching up a laceration for example so it's a very very particular kind of fistula that always results from prolonged obstructed labor and if you don't uh, fix it what happens that that means a woman can never have another child no, no, they can, they can go on having children. It's just that that depending on um, you know what kind of fistula is, you can have more than one, and you can have a fistula that that you know implicates the bladder and the rectum. Um, but you can wind up with a perpetual leak of urine and feces hmm. from the vagina, um, which ca causes a lot of excoriation of of the skin and rotting of of the labia and upper thighs. Hmm. Um, this is a horrific condition, and uh, women who have it today in Africa are often ostracized by their families, divorced by their husbands. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to overstate just how terrible this is. It's one of the worst things that can happen to a woman's body. So it's still common in Africa, but less common in this country? Well, it's virtually gone in in the West. You know that, like I said, it's the it's the advent of safe cesarean section that ultimately got rid of obstetric fistula. That had nothing to do with Sims. Sims had very little to say about cesarean section, um, and uh, but. You know, when you have, um, you know, in Africa, when you have, um, you know, cultural beliefs and cultural practices and an absence of infrastructure to transport women to uh, hospitals when they go into labor, um, when um, when you have a practice of child marriage, uh, there's all kinds of mitigating circumstances. So, so obstetric fistula in Africa is kind of a perfect demonstration of how um, a health crisis can really be systemic. It's not just that some people are predisposed to it. It's that a whole culture can uh, wind up conspiring to make women be more likely to acquire this condition. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is J.C. Hallman. His latest book, Say Anarcha, A Young Woman, A Devious Surgeon, and the Harrowing Birth of Modern Women's Health, published by Henry Holt and Company. This is WBAI New York. 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Sims had what was called a Negro hospital in a backyard in Montgomery, Alabama, where he conducted experimental vaginal surgeries. Yeah, you know, so... Oh, so always, on, always on enslaved women? Well, what happened was Sims moved into Montgomery uh, from a place called Mount Meg's, a little outside of town, in 1840. And for a number of years, he was just trying to establish a practice. So he had white patients and he had black patients. And he saw his black patients in, in a little infirmary that was in his yard that he called the Negro Hospital. And um, so he was seeing a lot of different kinds of conditions there, club foot, crossed eyes, various orthopedic conditions, cancer surgeries, and other kinds of experiments that he was performing at the time. And then in 1845, five years after he moved into the city, he encountered a Narca, and uh, he was asked to attend to her difficult, prolonged, obstructed labor, or her difficult birth, and he performed a forceps delivery um, of her child. And, uh, and then subsequently, he saw two others, very similar cases, and all of these women, after birth, began to leak urine. And Were forceps um, common at that point? 
Oh yeah, I mean forceps deliveries were 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 fairly common. They called them instrument deliveries, okay. um, and it would be you know you go in and grab the child and you pull it out. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm and, sorry I interrupted you. Finish what you were going to say. No worries. So, so so you know what Sims did is is when he researched this condition, obstetric fistula or vesicovaginal fistula, he discovered that although there had been occasional cures. Um, there wasn't anybody who had really taken credit for being the cure of this particular condition. And so he seized on it as an opportunity to pursue glory and fame as a doctor, which had been his goal for some time. And um, and so he he transformed his his infirmary, his backyard infirmary. He built a second story on it, added beds, and he gathered together those three initial women, Anarcha, Lucy, and Betsy, and approximately seven others. And those women began to live with one another while he was performing experiments on them. Well, I would assume because of the, the pain that word got out, uh, were the women... Uh, who were his patients willing because they were desperate and also their masters would leap at the chance of salvaging their investment? I think you have to be really careful anytime you, you, you talk about willing, right? You know, that mm-hmm. there is, is um, uh, you know, it's impossible for an enslaved person to provide consent. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it is, it's tricky in all kinds of ways because, you know, um, if, the pain you're going to suffer, you know, uh, in the surgery is worse than the pain you would inflict for refusing to participate. How how would you handle that exactly? And so I, I think you can't. And as I said, you can't overestimate the horror of this condition. And what what is important to recognize is that the women who have this would definitely want to be cured, but that makes them incredibly vulnerable to coercion. And uh, and I think what is most likely the case is that Sims coerced with false promises, you know, with, and with vague threats, a a kind of cooperation. But it has to be acknowledged that this cooperation cannot and should not ever be confused with informed consent. But didn't the surgery sometimes result in death? Uh, the, the early surgeries, no. Sims did not have a fistula death until he went to Europe, and uh-huh. um, he, he was trying to show his his um, uh, his wares in Europe, and that was at, at the beginning of the Civil War. Um, the early surgeries in Alabama did not uh, did not result in death, or if they did, you know, I mean, the important thing to understand about this story when we're talking about the Alabama fistula surgery surgeries or experiments is is that the only source was Sims himself. Mm. You know that that for you know a century. Uh, everybody who's been writing about Sims and, and Anarka and Lucy and Betsy, everybody's been looking at this really flawed source. Everybody knows that he was a self-aggrandizer and a propagandist. And everybody's had to pick and choose from uh, inside that very false uh, false source to figure out what story to tell. And and what I set out to do, both in terms of telling Sim's story, but then also in terms of telling Anarka's story, because the book's really a dual biography. Mm-hmm. I re-examine Sim's legacy, but then I also tell Anarka's story. Um, but in doing that, I found many, many sources that hadn't been used in any other take on uh, on Sim's life or Anarka's life. And and most uh, uh, most important of that was the evidence I found of Anarka's life, the first evidence ever found that really proved that she existed. Any anything about her that didn't come from Sims, and I managed to compile a kind of scaffold of primary sources about her life that let me track her life story all the way from the plantation where she was born in Alabama to the remote forest in Virginia where she's buried. Her name was spelled differently over the course of her lifetime. But A-N-A-R-C-H-A is the way we tend to spell it. Uh, The the title of your book is Say Anarcha. So why Say Anarcha? Well, I'm 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 referring to you know the 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 say her name movement you know and I think that um, uh, you know this would have been true of George Floyd as well say their names um, you know and you know as I said earlier you know I called on the WPA slave narratives to um, to tell an story in part because I had that primary scaffold 
of her life. But, you know, I wanted to tell her story in a way that gave her life mm. and presence and atmosphere and milieu. And, and to provide that, I called on the WPA slave narratives, which is, you know, comprised of thousands of um, of interviews with formerly enslaved persons. That was uh, um, the Federal Writers Project, which was part of the Works Progress Administration of FDR? Exactly, right. And and so you have to be a little careful with these because there were some uh, some of the interviewers that were, you know, that were sort of more lost cause types than than earnest oral historians. Um, and but, you know, you also had Zora Neale Hurston and Richard Wright gathering these stories. And so they are an incredible trove of materials to call on, um, you know, for for this kind of thing. And um, so at the beginning of my book, um, you know, the, the title page, say, in Arca, and then I have a quote from George Orwell, where he laments the fact that he can only think of the, the, the names of two enslaved people. And he's probably one of them is probably Spartacus. He's probably thinking of Spartacus. And, um, and the, the truth is, is that even at that moment, when Orwell's writing that, many, many more names of enslaved people, not even just the famous ones, Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and Solomon Northrup, but all these interviews had just been published. And so I compiled all those names um, and all the ones that I called on to tell an Arca story, and I put them in a big block right at the front of the book. A four-page list. Yeah, yeah, and it's more than five hundred names, and and it's just it is it is uh, another way of addressing that. So that's titled their names, and um, you know I very much wanted the book to be an effort to say Anarka's name and to tell her story, but also you know to to say the names and um, uh, and and make use of the materials that. Um, these narratives had been gathered for it's you know that the, the organizers of that project said that they hoped that those oral histories would be used by historians and creative writers and my hope was to try to fulfill that very lofty goal that was uh, set when they compiled those interviews haven't you called her one of the mothers of modern gynecology and others uh, also have been calling her the mother of gynecology yeah, I certainly was not first in that, you know, and and um, uh, in you know, and and I repeat it. I agree with it. <laughs> I think it's true, you know. But um, uh, that goes back a ways, you know. I think there was an NPR story that that called them the mothers of gynecology and Archelusi and Betsy, uh, and and then there have been other efforts, uh, you know, recently to commemorate these women. You know, it's my book is really just part of a chorus of voices. You know, there's scholars, there's journalists, there's historians, there's poets, there's playwrights, there's artists. There's been many, many people who have been trying to figure out how to honor this particular history to bear a kind of crucial witness to it, but then to also honor and remember um, these women, even if we can't say for sure what they looked like or what they sounded like, um, to make sure that their stories don't just slip away into history. So my book is, you know, provides some new material uh, that hasn't been used in, in other sources, but it is really just one of a one of a chorus of voices that have all been uh, sounding that same thing. And, and people were talking about the mothers of gynecology before I came along. Uh, but you say Anarka is a central figure in the creation story of modern women's health. Was she yeah. the most consequential of these experimental subjects? Yeah, I mean, she's the one about which the most is known, you know. And so Sims was the he he his the first case of obstetric fistula he encountered was Anarka. Um, do she we know about it only from Sims, or did Anarka also talk about it? Anarka didn't leave behind anything in in her voice. Right. You know, there there was there was no one there was really actually no one who actually even talked about having met her. That was one of the baffling things that I found when I first started looking at the story is that people had been looking at it for a while, but there had not been a concerted effort to find any any evidence of her that did not come from Sims. And wasn't he a very untrustworthy source? Yes, extremely untrustworthy. And, you know, and 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 the thing was, is, is I, I, I wanted to to see if evidence of her could be found. And, and yeah, she, she had, she was the one that had an, you know, Lucy and Betsy were very common names at the time. Anarka was not. So there was an opportunity, maybe she could be found, but yes, 
Sims, she was the first that Sims saw. She was experimented on upwards of 30 times uh, in between 1836 and 1846 and 1849. Um, and she was the first cure. You know, Sims tells the grandiose story about the first time that he manages to close a fistula, and that's Anarka. And, you know, but one of the major revelations from my book, I think, was the discovery of her in New York City in the hospital that Sims founded in New York City. She pops up in the case register books in New York. And what that reveals, just that, it reveals that the so-called first cure of the father of gynecology was never truly cured. She hadn't been that, cured. Yes, and that remains true for the rest of her life, as as is proven by other documents that I rely on later in the book. And again, you know, the, all these documents, everything I relied on became part of an online resource that I created called anarchaarchive.com or sayanarcha.com. Either one goes there. And so everything I relied on in telling Anarcha story, you can, you can just go and look at it. You don't even have to buy the book. You know, you can just go and look at all the sources that reveal her life story. Would she have been known uh, as Anarka Westcott because that was the name of her, her owner? Well, that, that happened later. You know, so in the introduction to my book, I talk about the fact that, you know, Anarka is really kind of a ghost, you know, that, that she was, you know, all we knew about her came from Sims. And we know his story was was kind of was kind of fraudulent. And um, and so uh, we, we had to have doubts about that. We had to read between the lines to try to tell the story that we could. And that began in the in the late 1960s when people started to reevaluate this legacy and say, well, maybe we shouldn't trust this. At, at, at face value. And, and that's when people started to refer to Anarka Westcott, um, which is a little problematic. You know, you don't want to apply an enslaver's name to someone without knowing for sure that they took that name by choice right. at emancipation. But this was getting used to, to distinguish between Sims Anarka and then the Anarka who was a, um, a fuller, more realized um, uh, uh, incarnation of her as she was being reimagined by people who weren't under the spell of Sims, you know, narrative. And, and then when I came along and I found, um, you know, a whole lot more sources about her, about things that we could say about her. She was never cured. She probably, she had 10 children who came to term. Um, we found her gravesite in a remote forest in Virginia, marked stone with her name on it. Um, you know, and, and so, um, my version is still kind of a ghost, you know, because it is an archival scaffold of lots of primary source materials, but it's not like a discovered autobiography that Anarka wrote, right? It's not like that. Mm -hmm. So there is a process that is being brought to bear to bring her to life. And I would simply say that that um, my, my version of Anarka's story is um, an improvement. You know, there's a lot more factual material, but it has to it has to be allowed that Anarka is still a kind of a kind of phantom, a still a kind of figure who is important as a symbol, not only of her own experience, but of the many women who ex were experimented on and suffered alongside of her. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with J.C. Hallman. If you signed up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Say Anarcha. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 or more donation in the name of London Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. And return now to J.C. Hallman. The book, Say Anarcha, A Young Woman, A Devious Surgeon, and the Harrowing Birth of Modern Women's Health, published by Henry Holt and Company. Um, how did you even come upon her? Your previous books, uh, In Utopia and the, and the 
chess artists are nothing like this. Yeah, I mean that's true. I mean there were there were hints, you know, if you go digging deep into my career, you you'll, you'll you'll find hints of me being interested in the history of medicine, you know. But before this, um yeah, there was really nothing like this. And I and I just, you know, um I stumbled across the term vesicovaginal fistula. I had no idea what it meant. Um I went looking at it. It was in the context of thinking about the uh, ongoing fistula crisis in Africa. And but I pretty quickly recognized that well there was this other part of the story there was the other kind of claim to fame of obstetric fistula which is that the so-called first cure of obstetric fistula was the creation story of modern women's health mm -hmm. so what I quickly recognized was that there was a direct line that you could track the influence from what. Uh, Anarka and these young women did when they were living together while Sims experimented on them. You could track that through New York to a very important hospital in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Hmm. And from there all across the developing world, which is filled with with fistula clinics that are that are that are working like hell to try to keep up with the incidence of obstetric fistula all across the world. So I set out to tell the story in a way that would connect those two things, that would connect this really, really important pivotal moment in the history of medicine to the ongoing crisis in Africa. And along the way it would shed light on on the um, rampant white supremacy that was that was ruling the day in the early in the early part of uh, our history as a nation uh, and and which has uh, domestic uh, residue in in uh, you know in stories like that of dr. Susan Moore of Ohio who who died of COVID a few years ago uh, and while she was dying a medical doctor a physician while she was dying in the hospital she was denied pain medication because she was black and and so the resonances of this story were were both domestic and uh, and um, and global, and uh, and so you know it was a long process for me to to wrap my head around it all. I went through a long long period of preparation and research and digging um, before I even began to sit down to write. Uh, to write the book. Um, but it began with a, a kind of random moment. Uh, and and then it morphed over time uh, to something that was much more than a book for me. And eventually it became something more like a life mission. And so now, you know, when, one of the things that we're doing is we're working to protect Anarka's grave in, in Virginia. And we've identified descendants of her husband who was buried alongside her. And we're making those efforts to try to make sure that her grave doesn't get desecrated and, and that um, the descendants of uh, Anarka and her husband have access to that site when they want to visit it. So she had a slave husband. Uh, well, it was you know it, was, it would have been um, uh, right around the time of emancipation. It's it's not a hundred percent clear exactly when uh, her her husband's name was Lorenzo. Um, probably, yeah. I mean, the way I tell it in the story is that yes, she met Lorenzo um, before emancipation, um, but their relationship straddled that. So she became free. She experienced freedom, and she was free alongside her husband. They remained where they were. Um, largely probably because um, Anarka was very sickly. She never did uh, recover. She never was cured. So she would have been afflicted by the many comorbidities that afflict um, fistula sufferers. And they stayed on the land where they had been enslaved and lived out the rest of their, their lives there. How long after the Civil War did she live? Uh, about five years. You know, so she dies. Old, yeah. You know, how old was she? Well, it's hard to say because it's not 100 percent sure, um, you know, when she was born. Uh, the best guess, I would say, is that she's born 1826, 1827, right in there. Um, and so she dies at around, uh, you know, around 1870, maybe 1869. There's conflicting uh, information in that regard. And uh, so she's, you know, early 40s, early to mid 40s is how long she lives, which is consistent with some of the things that I saw in, in Africa. I went to Africa to, to research and to bear witness um, to the ongoing crisis there that was one of the animating things for me. And I met many women 
in Africa who are basically like anarchos today. And some of them have uh, incurable fistula and uh, and they um, wind up as 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 hospice figures in their early 40s, just like anarcha did. Africa is a big continent. What part of Africa are we talking about? So I was in Ethiopia and Nigeria and Uganda. So, you know, so North Africa, you know, central, central west or central, central east, sorry. And then, and then West Africa. So a a good swath of it, but it's a, it is a condition that afflicts the whole continent and really the whole developing world. Now you said that Dr. Sims moved to New York city. That was that because he was becoming famous and he wanted to cash in on that? Uh, it was more like he wanted to become famous, <laughs> and so he moved to New York City. And you know, in, in in a weird way, it's you know, it's 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 kind of a familiar story. That's what people do. They go to New York to try to you know to try to make it there. If they can make it there, they can make it anywhere. And and now you um, tell and, me that I've been here all my <laughs> life. Yeah. So so Sims moved to New York, you know, and it was all part of a larger plan, you know, that that he had been watching how other doctors were making money. In particular, he was watching how cancer quacks made money. And they and they did so by developing what they promised as a new cure, uh, delivering it free to um, impoverished people, then advertising those successes and then charging wealthy people for the same treatment. And that's basically what Sims did when he opened a hospital in in New York. It was a charity hospital, Um, but he intended for it to be a laboratory for exploring new procedures and as well a way of advertising his services so that in private practice, he could charge a lot of money to wealthy women if he went to their homes and did the same thing he was doing at Women's Hospital. And he even treated European royalty. Yeah, I mean, I think I I call some of that into question, but he definitely, you know, um, uh, wound up uh, traveling in royal circles in in Europe. And um, and it's certainly the case that fistula, obstetric fistula would have been a a condition that appealed to Sims because it did not disproportionately affect enslaved people. Everybody had this problem. And so he could he could perfect his cure on vulnerable populations uh, and then charge wealthy people for the same thing. And, um, but it's, but it's important to note, you know, that one of the, another, the significant discoveries of, of my book is that Sims actually was a spy for the Confederacy during the civil war. And, uh, and so his connection to royalty um, in, in Europe would have been connected to um, the use that they wanted to, to make of him, that, that in particular, uh, Louis Napoleon, Napoleon III, um, was wanting to have ways to communicate with the, both the North and the South during the war that were outside of the normal communication channels. And so for the, for the North, he used a doctor named Thomas Evans, who was a dentist actually in Paris. And, um, and then, you know, the, the, what I discovered was that the state department, you know, the William Seward of the, the you know, Lincoln secretary of state believed that Sims was, was uh, acting as a spy on behalf of the Confederacy. And it's very likely that he was serving that same function for Louis Napoleon. Napoleon used to call Evans to say, I need my teeth fixed fixed. And then he would be brought in and then and then Napoleon would send a message to the Lincoln administration. But he couldn't do that with Sims, right? So he used his wife. So, you know, he would he would have Sims come to see his wife, but then there would be an ulterior motive to that. So the the this even the story of Sims experimenting or, or operating on royalty in Europe um, is part of that fraudulent narrative that that um, I hope my book has sufficiently uh, undermined. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is J.C. Hallman, whose latest book is a young woman, is, uh, I'm sorry, is Say Anarcha, a young woman, a devious surgeon, and the harrowing birth of modern women's health, published by Henry Holt and Company. Now, didn't she wind up... Uh, uh, be- working as a midwife, a nurse, and what was called a doctor woman? 
Yeah. So, you know, that it has long been part of the story of the Alabama fistula experiments that that after a couple of years, you know, Sims thought he was going to cure them all in six months and that didn't happen. And after a couple of years, the assistants that he'd gathered and the, and the other medical professionals in Montgomery abandoned him. They weren't going to come to these experiments anymore. And there were dozens of them happening. And so Sims um, was forced to call upon the women themselves to become nurses and assistants. And so it's known that these women living together and caring for one another became a kind of skilled core of assistance and probably, you know, um, as 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 well educated in obstetric fistula as anybody was in, in the in the 19th century. Just by um, observance. Sorry. Through observance. Well, and then eventually participation, yes, mm. but both, you know, certainly, you know, from, but from the get-go, you know, that the, the, the procedure for this um, condition requires an extensive period of aftercare. So they would have been called upon to care for one another in that little infirmary in Sims' backyard right from the start. But then eventually they became nurses and assistants during the surgeries as well. Um, and, you know, the, 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 uh, so that was, that was known, but that was in Sims' story. And so what my work eventually discovered was that um, there was evidence that Anarka had worked as a nurse in other places before, during, and after the fistula experiments. So, you know, she went on, she was trained as a caregiver prior to that, um, was was working at a, at a local hotel uh, to care for sick, wealthy people during the period of the fistula experiments. And then eventually, later in, in life... Sorry? In Montgomery. Yes, in Montgomery. And later in life, after she left Alabama um, in Virginia, she was working as a midwife and would likely have also been providing, um, you know, other kinds of other kinds of care. I mean, it's I mean, it makes sense. Right. Because, you know, here you have a woman who was had this, um, you know, sort of accidentally acquired skill set. So it makes sense that later on her enslavers would use her for for that purpose. And what happened after uh, emancipation? Was she still allowed to practice medicine? Uh, it's it's the the information gets really sketchy there, you know, and and I think that you know because I know she dies. Um, in 1869, 1870, the way I tell her story was that she was in those years, 1866 to 1869. Um, I suspect that she is growing uh, increasingly fragile, and and is and there's a letter saying that that um, she's incapable of work in 1864. So I think it's unlikely that after the Civil War that she was working as a health care provider, uh, but certainly prior to that. Now, uh, when she was in New York, was it only as a patient or was she helping Sims? No, it was it was it was as a patient, and and she wasn't there for that long. You know, the 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 laws on um, on ownership of of enslaved people in New York were it was forbidden. You know, you weren't allowed to stay more than a few months, and uh, and so um, she came when she had been uh, you know purchased by a new enslaver, um, and uh, there was a, the woman was going to be getting pregnant, and so it's what makes the most sense is that Anarka would have been purchased to um, become an attendant. Uh, as this woman was was going through pregnancy, um, in fact, the, the the husband in this case had a previous wife who had died in childbirth. So it may, it does make a lot of sense that he would be wanting to take some kind of precaution with his new wife mm -hmm. um, by um, purchasing a woman who had a lot of experience of the traumas that can attend delivery. Um, and uh, and so um, she is brought to New York. Uh, at that time. And it's also the case that, though, that, that um, she had been experimented on in Richmond for a time. And uh, that when she first left Alabama, uh, she was sent to Richmond, where she was experimented on by another doctor, a guy named Charles Bell Gibson, um, you know, for some time. And but Gibson couldn't couldn't cure Anarka just as Sims wasn't able to. And, and so at this point, um, when Sims hears about this, it's right at that moment when he's telling the whole world, when his whole career rests on the idea that he cured this young woman. It's, it is the creation myth of his life. And he can't have it known that the so-called first cure wasn't cured. 
So, of course, Anarka is brought to Woman's Hospital to be experimented on Sims again uh, in 1857, just to try to make sure that his narrative isn't interrupted by the revelation that the woman he's he's celebrating as this pivotal cure in his in the history of his life is not actually cured what led to the erection of a 9 foot tall statue of sims that was in bryant park so yeah so that's that's a that's a long story you know i mean it's but the the short ver- the short version is that um sims was largely celebrated he had, you know one of the one of the main things to understand about how his legacy is perceived now is is that some people who are concerned about the removal of monuments and such think that there's a projection of modern values into the past when we look at at, at sims in his career and that's just simply not the case you know that sims had many many uh, contemporary critics and in fact the people who knew knew him best, his assistants went on to become his greatest critics. The people who were his greatest critics were the ones who were sitting right next to him as he worked. And uh, and they wrote a lot about um, the problems they had with Sims and his values and his ethics and his procedures and, and uh, his tendency to take credit for a lot of things that he didn't do. And um, But those voices um, were a minority. And and so the the larger male medical establishment, white male medical establishment in the country, um, still celebrated Sims. In a way, he became a point of national pride because he was this American doctor that was supposed to have showed the Europeans that Americans can invent stuff too, right? And, and he's the father of gynecology. Exactly right, and and so you know his his legacy was secure by the mid '60s, and even though he did a lot of awful things and and a lot of feuds and and um, uh, challenges to his legacy were happening even then, uh, that um, that tended to get drowned out, and and so after he died, um, those who were his champions and his apologists. Um, put put together a ten year long effort to raise funds for his his Central Park monument. Well, first um, it was Bryant Park, and then it was moved to Central Park, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. A, it was first erected in Bryant Park in eighteen ninety four, and then when they were building the L train, they they removed it for a time. And and this was during Robert Moses's uh, um, time as as the the head of the Department of Parks, and Moses wasn't a fan of statues at all. And so uh, at that point, um, doctors in New York, and specifically doctors at the New York Academy of Medicine, um, uh, argued that the statue should be reinstalled on one of the outer walls of Central Park, right at about 103rd and 5th, uh, 5th Avenue. And this white racist up near Harlem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's technically it's East Harlem, right? You know, and and uh, and and so, and that's where it stood. You know, it was, it was re-erected in uh, 1934, and it remained there until 2018. Um, a lot of your your listeners may may look online and see that it's been reinstalled in in Greenwood at the site of 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 Sims' grave, but that's not true. I've been out there a, a bunch of times to Sims' grave, and and it's not been reinstalled. It's not there, and I don't think you could. I think. It's just too heavy. I think it would crush the graves beneath it and probably fall over. So I, I don't, I, you know, the, the Parks Department doesn't like to talk about this too much because they don't want to set the precedent that anybody can complain about a statue and then it just gets removed. Um, but that's what happened. And that precedent has now been set. And 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 it's. I think that that's a triumph because it means that history and truth and facts will prevail over over propaganda. It may take decades or a century, but eventually the, the truth will come out. We have very little time left, but I did want to mention and uh, ask you about the afterword to your book, which is called The Modern Legacy of the Alabama Fistula Experiments. What is the modern legacy? 
So, you know, a lot of people look at Sim's career and they talk about, well, you know, he cured fistula or he, he invented this device or he invented this procedure or this position. And, you know, and as I said, you know, what my work has done is shown that just every clinical advance um, has, has, it just turns out to be debunked or to not be Sims at all. But there is something that came out of the Alabama fistula experiments. Those young women gathered together in Alabama, they devised accidentally you know, by way of circumstance, under coercion, a patient-centered model of care, caring for one another, helping one another, growing and changing, um, and uh, and helping one another to heal and go on. That is the thing that moved mm -hmm. from Alabama to New York and then to Addis Ababa and all across the developing world. That That is the thing that was emulated in Africa having fistula sufferers become caregivers, become health providers, just like Anarka, and, and having them care for one another. So there is a clinical advance that came out of the Alabama fistula experiments, but it owes absolutely nothing to J. Marion Sims, and it owes everything instead to Anarka and Lucy and Betsy, a group of enslaved teenagers in Alabama. The book is called Say Anarka, A Young Woman, A Devious Surgeon, and the Harrowing Birth of Modern Women's Health, published by Henry Holt and Company. Uh, my guest has been J.C. Hallman. Mr. Hallman, it's been a pleasure talking with you. It's a fascinating story and one that should be better known. Thank you so much for having me, Leonard. I really it, appreciate it. It also explains a whole bunch of things that still go on in our world today, some attitudes that we we see expressed uh, in in racial divide in this country. Yeah, I mean that's what and that's what history is for, right? It's not just for learning our quirky facts from the past. It's learning how how we got to where we are today, and recognizing that if we want to change where we are today, the first step is to go back and to bear important witness to those things from the past that we can correct those false those falsehoods, that propaganda that can be changed, and that's the way to change our future. Thank you again. Uh, that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has now far surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you would like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this station coming to you. We're going through a serious economic crisis right now, and that's why you're hearing any number of, of fundraisers interspersed with the regular programming. Uh, we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or online give the number to WBAI.org because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else and as I mentioned earlier anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Say Anarka by J.C. Hallman. So why not make that call right now? 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $5, $10, $15, $20 a month. It allows us to plan for the future, and you can do it as long as you wish. Um, uh, because and, and anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month, uh, we're happy to send a BAI tote bag. So if you tune in regularly to the show, why not let us know that you appreciate what we're doing by giving us that call, because BAI is the only station on the New York radio dial that is 100% listener-sponsored, and your contribution is tax-deductible. We're preempted tomorrow. But I hope you can join us on Wednesday when hygienist Monona Russell will discuss the latest in health care issues and take your calls. We'll see you then.